0: Hosea chapter 13, Hosea chapter 13 is where we're going to begin our study tonight. Hosea chapter 13, we're going to begin reading in verse 1 and uh, down to verse 4 and then as we've done before we're going to skip in and out of the book, trying to get a feel for the book, uh, trying to get a hold on the theme of the book. Uh, Chapter 13 of Hosea then in verse 1, Hosea 13.1. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended in Baal, he died. And now they sin more and more, and have made them molten images of their silver and idols, according to their own understanding, all of it the work of craftsmen. They say of them, Let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud, And as the early dew that passeth away, as the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor, and as the smoke out of the chimney, yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious and eternal word. Now we've been thinking about this prophecy of Hosea and we've seen how this book is divided into two parts. Uh, We've seen uh, in the first place how Hosea speaks to us of the injury to his home life, particularly in those first three chapters. And he tells uh, of his marriage to Gomer. It's an autobiographical section of the book. He tells how he's commanded of God to marry this woman, uh, Gomer, a, a harlot. And he marries her. She's promiscuous. She leaves him for other men. She has other children uh, by other men. Uh, But through it all, we see that his love for his wife conquers all. And he redeems her even though she's a broken and wasted woman. And he brings her back from the slave market and returns her home unto himself and to their marriage. And of course, in all of this, we have an object lesson or a sermon Something is being played out before us to help us understand the dealings of God. And so Hosea in all of this is relaying to us God's love for the nation of Israel. That though the nation has been adulterous and idolatrous and has forsaken the Lord, the Lord is still concerned to bring her back to himself. Of course she will suffer, as Gomer did, some degree of pain and loss in the process of all of that. But God in his grace is determined to woo her and to win her and to bring her home. So that's the first part of the book, the injury to his home life. Then you have the iniquity of his homeland. And uh, we see now God's perspective on all of this in relation to the nation of Israel. And of course, uh, you know, not only do we see God's Love for Israel in particular, but we see his dealings with mankind in general. So Israel, as I say, had given herself to idols. She was spiritually adulterous, and as a consequence of her behavior, she would suffer uh, her own pain and loss, and God would seek her out. So the, the reason why she's suffering this pain and loss is down to her iniquities. And so we saw how that she was denounced uh, by the Lord. Uh, How she was desired by the Lord. Remember, He said, What have I to do with thee? You know, what am I going to do with you? Uh, And then uh, we've seen how she was described by the Lord. Now, we did all of this last week, and there was a little bit of distraction uh, last week. So, I'm going to give you a very quick revision. Okay, I'm not going to go through the whole study. You can go back online. And listen to the whole study from start to finish if you so desire. But just to give you a quick revision of what you missed primarily last week. And uh, Hosea in describing Israel's sin uses a number of uh, uh, descriptive terms, adjectives and various analogies to try and portray where she was in her walk with the Lord. So first of all he described her as a backsliding heifer. And remember that picture of a, of a farmer trying to pull his calf onto the trailer and maybe two of the hands at the back trying to push the animal on and the animal is resisting uh, and really fighting uh, the whole movement of the men. And that was a picture of Israel. Here was God trying to woo her and win her and draw her with cords of love but she was fighting against God's love and against God's grace. Then she's described as an overheated oven and in that respect it's a picture of her lusts and how she was burning uh, with lust. Then thirdly she's described as a cake half turned. In that sense she's part judaistic and part pagan one part of her desires to worship the lord and to follow the various feast days another part is really given to baal and to other idols and so she's a cake half turned in so far as she's looking toward idolatry on the one hand and looking toward the lord on the other and of course a cake that's half turned is a cake that is ruined a cake that is not fit for human consumption and then she's described as an aging man Remember, she had gray hairs here and there, according to chapter 7 and verse 9. And the picture was one of gradual weakness. As she's going on uh, with this love affair with the idols, she's weakening as a nation. Uh, She's beginning to lose her strength uh, before the Lord. And then she's described as a silly dove in uh, chapter 7. And verse 11. And again, this is a picture of her uh, trying to woo the Egyptians, woo the Assyrians, uh, trying to convince the Assyrians that maybe they'd be a good ally for them. And that doesn't work. They go to the Egyptians, they try to get the Egyptians to join them in a defense against the Assyrian Empire. And God pictures them like a little lovebird fluttering here and there, trying to find lovers, trying to find someone who will take her in. And basically, she finds none. So then, in the the next section, we find that she's a crooked bow, chapter 7 and verse 16. And again, you know, we painted the picture last week of someone with a defective bow. They put the arrow in, but the arrow won't shoot straight because the bow is pushing the arrow off to one side. And the idea is that Israel is falling short of the mark, that they're not hitting the target that God would have set for them. Then they're a useless pot. What do you do with a useless pot? Well, you, you basically give it away, don't you? Uh, or you throw it away. Um, so she's a useless pot and she's just there for the taking. She's of no use to man or beast as far as God is concerned. She's just fit to be cast to one side. And that's what's going to happen to her. The Assyrians are going to come in, she's going to be taken captive and cast, as it were, uh, to one side. So she's a useless pot. She's like a wild donkey. And remember, it's a particular kind of donkey that uh, is in view here. It's the onager. It's a donkey that cannot be tamed. It's a donkey that is of no domestic use. It's a donkey that's very isolated out in the wilderness and seeking after food. And so that was a picture of Israel uh, as isolated in the world. She had no uh, allegiance with Egypt. She had no allegiance with Assyria. She's out in the wilderness, uh, you know, wild and bare, and she's seeking for some satisfaction, but can't find any. Uh, then she's a dried up root, and that is what it's, what it's described. She's an nation that is rotting from the bottom up, that she's, uh, that she's really beginning just to fall apart and to show her dried up and weak uh, and dying and decaying state. And then finally, the last description is of an empty vine. And remember, he took you to Matthew uh, chapter uh, 17 and 23, I think it was, or 24, where the Lord talks about the parable of the fig tree, and, uh, uh, and, he, and he destroys the fig tree in chapter 17. And, of course, in that respect, the vine uh, is, was, was a prom- it promised much. It, it should have given fruit uh, to its owner, but it didn't. It was an empty vine, and uh, it was fit for nothing but to be cut up and cast into the fire. And that's where Israel was. Uh, they promised much uh, as far as their nationhood was concerned. But in reality, they delivered very little. And so for all of these reasons, uh, God, or in all of these descriptions, you see why God is allowing her and indeed even causing her to go into captivity in order to cure her of her idolatry and to bring her home. Sometimes, you know, when you're dealing with children... You just, and you're dealing, you know, with people, sometimes you just have to let them experience the consequence of their own behavior, don't you? You just have to let them go. Like the prodigal's father let the prodigal son go. That was actually the, the, an act of wisdom on his part. It wasn't that he was careless, but uh, he was willing to let his son go and learn from his own mistakes and realizing that someday he would come to the end of himself and return And we've all done that to certain degrees with our children and with other people in our lives. You know, all of us, I often use this illustration, you know, when you're with a little child, maybe he's around three or four, you take him to a restaurant, you buy him a glass of Coke and there's inevitably a a lemon floating in the Coke or there's a lemon on a piece of fish somewhere and uh, he asks, can he eat it? And, uh, you know, if you're a good parent, you say, no, you wouldn't like it. And then the child says, I would like it. And then you say, well, go ahead and eat it. And then you watch the little face squirm. And it's so much fun. I, I did that with all four of our children. Yeah, you know, I wish we had had all of the social media and stuff that you have today. That would have been a picture well worth taking. But, uh, you know, the wee faces are squirming. And you say to them, well, did you like it? And uh, the more stubborn of them will say, yes, it was very nice. <laughs> and, uh, but, they, but inevitably, they'll have to accept that you were right and they were wrong. So you let them suffer the consequences. And that's what God is doing with Israel. He's going to let them suffer the consequences of their sin. So we've seen then uh, how Israel was disciplined. And, uh, and the first thing I want you to see is how she was disciplined uh, without, by being without a king. So this is the next thing we want to see. We want to think about how she was disciplined and how she was delivered. Now the theme of Israel's discipline is peppered throughout this uh, prophecy. Again and again, God reminds them that there's a penalty for sin, that there's a payday coming someday, that they would reap what they had sown. Look in chapter 8 and verse 7. He says of them in chapter 8 and verse 7, For they have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. They have sown the wind, and they shall reap the whirlwind. If you go in chapter 10 and verse 13, he uses this same analogy of sowing and reaping. You have ploughed wickedness. You have reaped iniquity. Chapter 10, verse 13. You have eaten the fruit of lies because thou didst trust in thy way in the multitude of of thy mighty men. And, and in verse 12, he says, Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it's time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. So you get this, you get this picture of sowing and reaping. And of course, that's a theme that's recurrent throughout the word of God. You look back to the book of Job, uh, Job chapter four and verse eight, there's a reference to the principle of sowing and and reaping in Job chapter 4. Job chapter 4 and verse 8. And these are the words of one of Job's friends, Eliphaz. Uh, and even though Eliphaz is not always a good confidant and good counselor, and indeed he times misapplies biblical principles here we have a biblical principle even as I have seen he says in chapter 4 and verse 8 they that plow iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same they that plow iniquity and they that sow wickedness reap the same if you look in Proverbs chapter 22 Proverbs chapter 22 verse 8 Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 8 says, he that soweth iniquity shall reap vanity and the rod of his anger shall fail. And then, of course, that very familiar passage from Paul's writings in Galatians and chapter 6, the very last chapter of the book of Galatians. We, I'm sure, have heard this passage and read this verse many times where we read, be not deceived in verse 7, Galatians 6, 7, be not deceived. God is not mocked for whatsoever a man soweth that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption, but he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. So here's the principle. You always reap what you sow. You always reap more than you sow. And you always reap later than you sow. So you reap what you sow. You reap more than you sow. You know, you plant an apple tree, you've you've got one apple, you plant the seeds, it grows a tree. Ultimately, you have many apples, so you reap more than you sow. But you don't reap what you sow on the day that you sow. You have to wait for the passage of time, and then you will uh, reap what you sow. And so it is uh, with nations, and as it is also with individuals. So the Israelites had sold their souls to Baal worship. And uh, they'd done so in the hope, actually, of having a bumper harvest. Baal, remember, is the fertility god. They thought by sacrificing to him that they would somehow increase their harvest. And God tells them that's a big mistake. Let's go back to Hosea and chapter 2. And let's read it verses 4 through 9 of that chapter. And see what God has to say about this thought of theirs. This perception that Baal uh, would be of help to them. Uh, chapter 2 I'm <clears throat> sorry, not verses 4 through 9, but verses 6 through 9. Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall that she shall not find her paths. And she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. And she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and return to my first husband. For notice, then was it better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn uh, and uh, wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold which they prepared for Baal therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time they're off and my wine in the season they're off and will cover my wool and my flecks given to cover her nakedness and so God says I'm going to chastise you I'm going to um, curse your crops rather than blessing your crops and you'll find that the God upon whom you've been reliant is no God at all and then the hope is that they will then turn to the Lord. Look in chapter 3 and verse 4. Here's the consequences of all of this, and here's the discipline coming. It says for the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image and without an effort and without terror. So there are several consequences that are listed there in that verse. And the first one is this. She was to be disciplined because she would be without a king. She was going to have no king. Now, what happened in 721 BC? The very last king of Israel, King Hosea, was deposed. And uh, his people were conquered by Assyria and taken into captivity. If you look in chapter 10 of Hosea, chapter 10 and verse 5. It says in verse 5. Then the inhabitants of Samaria shall fear because of the calves of Beth-Avon. That is, they, remember, they were worshipping calves. For the people thereof shall mourn over it, and the priests thereof that rejoiced on it for the glory thereof, because it is departed from it. It shall also be carried on to Assyria for a present to King Jerob. Notice what happens to their gods. Their gods are carried away to Assyria. They're golden calves. And the Assyrians, of course, are themselves idolaters, and they certainly would have been glad to have this uh, this, this this spoils of conquering Israel by taking away their gods. So they, their god would be carried away unto Assyria for a present to King Jerob. Ephraim shall receive shame, and Israel shall be ashamed of his own counsel. As for Samaria, her king is cut off as the foam upon the water. The high places of Avon, the sin of Israel shall be destroyed. The thorn and thistle shall come up on their altars, and they shall say to the mountains, Cover us, and to the hills, Fall on us. The same thing that is said in Revelation six sixteen uh, by the uh, those caught under tribulation judgment. So uh, when you read in uh, Second Chronicles then chapter seventeen, if you go with me there for a moment, you get a or sorry Second Kings chapter seventeen. You get a chronicle of King Hosea's days and of his, of his end. And it says in uh, chapter 17 of, of, of uh, 2 Kings, in verse 1, 2 Kings chapter 17 and verse 1, In the twelfth year of Ahaz, king of Judah, began Hosea, the son of Elah, to reign in Samaria over Israel nine years. And he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him, Against him came up Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, and Hoshea became his servant and gave him presents. And the king of Assyria found conspiracy in Hosea, for he had sent messengers to so king of Egypt, and brought no present to the king of Assyria, as he had done year by year. Therefore the king of Assyria shut him up and bound him in prison. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria And besieged it three years. Now, remember, Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel at this point. So, in the the, um, second verse there, you read that uh, Hosea did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, but not as the kings of Israel that were before him. Now, that should not be interpreted by us as suggesting that he was somehow a better king. He wasn't a better king, he was an idolater, the same as all his predecessors. But the likelihood is that by the time he comes to the throne, the golden calves have already been given to the Assyrians as a present. It's around pacify them to keep them uh, at bay. And so he has no golden calves uh, to worship. But nevertheless, uh, make no mistake about it, this man was as evil as the 18 kings who preceded him. Now, 721 BC, Israel is destroyed and the people taken off and the land is left in desolation. In 586 BC, the same thing essentially happens to Judah, the southern kingdom, only this time at the hands of Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. So when the northern kingdom is destroyed and then the southern kingdom is destroyed, this prophecy given by Hosea is fulfilled. Israel is without a king. And they are without a king from that day onward. As a punishment from God, Israel removes the throne from them temporarily. So then, six centuries later, what happens? The Lord Jesus comes. And he comes and he offers them a kingdom. He comes to them as the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. He presents himself to them as their true king. But what's their reply? Listen to what it is. They cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Shall I, now listen to his words, shall I crucify your king? Now, where did Pilate get that idea that Christ was their king? Well that was that was what he was told. That this man was somehow trying to usurp Roman rule, that he was presenting himself as a ruler over Israel, as a king, as a Messiah, as a Christ. He says to them, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar. So they rejected Christ as king. In fact, the Lord Jesus in the parable of the pounds uh, describes this perfectly. When he presents uh, his offer of the kingdom this way, uh, it says that his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. And that's what Israel says to this day. Israel as a nation says, we will not have Christ. We will not have this man to reign over us. We will not have this king. We have no king but Caesar. And that's been the ongoing situation from the time of of Judah's captivity to this present day. Israel still has no king. You know, here's a land that was a land of kings, but it has no king. She has an elected president. Indeed, their president incumbent in the presidential office is a man by the name of Isaac Herzog. Uh, Herzog, and, and he's quite interesting from our point of view because he has a Northern Irish lineage. We get everywhere, don't we? Uh, His grandfather was born in, uh, sorry, yes, his his grandfather, I think it was, was born, uh, his father, actually, it wasn't his grandfather, his father, uh, Cain Herzog, was born in uh, Belfast. In fact, if you are ever up in Belfast and you're in Clifton Park Avenue area, there's a blue plaque on the wall that says that this is the birthplace or the home of uh, Cain Herzog, uh, who was the sixth president of the nation of Israel. So there you go. So the present president, Probably speaks with the Belfast accent. Amen? But uh, somehow I doubt that. But nevertheless, you never know. Uh, But it's interesting. So they have a president, but no king. And Israel will not have a king until the Lord Jesus returns. Let's look in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. In verse 11, of course, this is the, the glorious moment of the second coming of the Lord in Revelation 19:11, it says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. He comes to rule and reign from Jerusalem, and so for centuries, Israel has been without a king. Now let's go back to Hosea, and, and let's look again at that fourth verse of chapter three, because there's an interesting development in this verse, Hosea chapter three and verse four, It says, "For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king." And then it says this, "And without a prince." without a prince. Now, that's interesting. Uh, You know, when you think about that, uh, he's making a, a distinction here between a king and a prince. He's saying there's going to be no king and no prince until the Lord Jesus comes. Now, of course, in the normal course of events, a prince is naturally in line for the throne. He's an heir to the throne. Now, we've already seen who Israel's last king will be. That's the Lord Jesus when he returns as king of kings and lord of lords. But who is the prince? Well, verse 5 gives us the answer. It says, "'Afterwards shall the children of Israel return,' return to their land. And afterwards means in the latter days, as you see at the end of this verse. "'Afterwards shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God. And notice, "'And David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days.'" You see, the Jews were rightfully expecting a Messiah who would be in David's line. They're looking for David, their king. They're expecting someone connected to David to rule and to reign. But look what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22 and verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? And notice what they say. They say unto him, the son of David. He's got to be of the Davidic line. And he saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then call him Lord, how is he his son? And no man was able to answer him a word. Neither durst any man from that day forth ask him any more questions. Now, here's the deal. You know, when you have a son, who's the senior figure? You or your son? Well, you should be the senior figure, right? The father is the senior figure. The grandfather is the senior figure over the grandson in the family. That's the way it works. That's nature's way that's God's order of things there's nothing wrong with any of that so Jesus asked them of the Messiah well whose son is he and they say the son of David so that's pretty reasonable but then he asked this question well then if that's the case why does David call him Lord in other words he says why is David recognizing his offspring as having greater authority than him you see what he's saying He said, why is David then recognizing his son as Lord, as ruler, as king? Surely if he's the king, he's the king. But he's recognizing that there's a higher authority. There's an authority that is above and beyond his own throne. That David was and would be subservient to the Christ, to Jesus. Now, I tell you all of that to tell you this. In the closing chapters of Ezekiel's prophecy, if you turn to Ezekiel 44 for a moment, in the closing chapters of of Ezekiel's prophecy, where the prophet is discussing the details of the Millennial Temple, and of course, our brother Ian Jemison was teaching on the Millennial Temple in the last night of our week of Bible ministry, uh, and he he covered it, you know, he had a lot of ground to cover, eight or nine chapters to cover in one hour, uh, or less and he, he did very admirably with that but he couldn't cover every detail and here's one of the little details that he missed out in chapter 44 of Ezekiel and verse 1 remember this is describing the millennial temple and what happens on the campus of the temple and it says then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary which looketh toward the east and it was shut. Now remember the eastern gate is the means by which Christ enters into the temple mount. That when he returns he comes to the Mount of Olives. He crosses the Kidron Valley. He goes up through the eastern gate onto the plateau in which the temple shall stand. But once he goes through that gate what happens is the gate is shut behind him. And it's never going to be opened again. The Lord Jesus is never going that way again. You see, in Ezekiel chapter 11, you have the Shekinah glory leaving the temple area. He comes out. He goes out on the eastern gate side, down the Kidron Valley, up to the Mount of Olives in a way. And never again did the Lord's presence, spiritually, in the temple. But when the Lord Jesus comes, he comes the opposite direction. He comes to the Mount of Olives, across the valley, and through the eastern gate. And once he comes... There's going to be no reversal of that situation. He is here forever. And so the gate is shut behind him. There's no other other contenders. There's no other uh, individuals who can come and challenge his rule. He will rule and reign forever. Now, watch what happens. Verse 2. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened. And no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord God of Israel, notice who's entered it, the Lord God of Israel hath entered in by it, therefore it shall be shut. So what's going to become of the gate? Now, unless you've seen this with your own eyes, you may not understand what's going on here. When we read about a gate, we think about a garden gate, you know, just a piece of wood or metal that you swing open on a pair of hinges. When the Bible talks about a gate, it's talking about an anti-room. There's a room, you know, like a castle gate. You, know, you go up to a, a gate in a castle, and there's a portcullis there, and then there's, you, you step in, and there's a little room. There's usually a roof over your head, and you're under underneath the castle walls. Similar idea, except it's a built-up part of the fortress, a built-up part of the temple complex. So, you, so it's a room all to itself. Although it's called a gate, you're going through a room, really, into the temple outer court. And so it says that when the Lord enters this gate, this gate is going to be shut. And no man's going to enter into it again. Now, why is that? Look at verse 3. It is for the prince. It is for the prince. So this room, if you like, that is the eastern gate, is now the reserve of a prince. The prince, he shall sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate and shall go out by the way of the sea. Now, go to chapter 45. 45 and uh, verse 7. It says, And a portion shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other side of the oblation of the holy portion. So again, there's a, re- a reservation here made uh, for a prince. and uh, uh, there's, a, there's part of an offering that is reserved for him. Uh, if you go on then down to verse 12 of that chapter. Uh, wait a minute! Have I messed up here? Sorry. Chapter forty-six and verse twelve says: "Now, when the prince shall prepare a voluntary burnt offering or peace offerings, voluntary unto the Lord, one shall look upon him. The gate, uh, one shall then open him the gate that looketh toward the east, and he shall prepare his burnt offerings and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go forth, and after his going forth, one shall shut." the gate. If you look further down the passage, uh, see here, chapter 47. Oh, man. Let's look at chapter 46, verse 2. The prince shall enter by the way of the porch of that gate without, and shall stand by the post of the gate, and the priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate, then he shall go forth, but the gate shall not be shut until the eve- evening. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the door of this gate before the Lord in the Sabbath and in the new moon. And the burnt offerings that the prince shall offer unto the Lord in the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. We go back to chapter 45, verse 17. And it shall be the prince's part. Uh, to give burnt offerings and meat offerings and drink offerings in the feasts, in the new moons, in the Sabbaths, in all solemnities of the house of Israel. He shall prepare the sin offering and the meat offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings to make reconciliation for the house of Israel. First 22. And upon that day shall the prince <coughs> prepare for himself and for all people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. Now, here's my question. The prince, if the prince is the Lord Jesus... Why in the world would he be preparing a sin offering for himself? Does Jesus need to prepare a sin offering for himself? No. So this is clearly not the Lord Jesus. It's not the Lord Jesus who is making offerings unto the Lord. He is the Lord. He's going to be situated within this uh, temple at the Holy of Holies on the throne of God. and, uh, And on his own throne. And then at the eastern gate there's this other figure, a prince who is making offerings. Now, this is what we want to figure out. Who is this privileged and worshipping prince? Well, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse 23. It says, And I will set up one shepherd over them, and he shall feed them, even my servant David, He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. Look at chapter 37. Chapter 37 of Ezekiel's prophecy, verse 24. And David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd. They shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them and they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob my servant wherein your fathers have dwelt and they shall dwell therein even they and their children and their children's children forever and my servant David shall be what? their prince for how long? forever moreover I will make a covenant of peace between, with them and it shall be an everlasting uh, covenant uh, and so on alright now go back to Hosea chapter 3 and verse 5 Hosea chapter 3 and verse 5. <clears throat> and notice the distinction that has been made in this verse between the Lord and David. Afterward shall the children of Israel return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. So the Lord Jesus was by necessity of the tribe of Judah. Of the house of his, uh, of the, of the uh, lineage of David, of the house of David. Uh, and in that sense, he comes and he sits upon the throne as a son of David, as the son of David. But in another sense, he sits over David. He's David's king. He's David's ruler. So that David, even though he is the father figure in terms of chronology, in terms of Christ's physicality, in terms of spirituality, Christ is over David, and he must acknowledge him as Lord. And I think this is a beautiful thing because, you know, you think about what the Lord said in, in, I think it's Matthew 12. He says about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sitting down and eating with him in the kingdom of God. And uh, he envisages a day coming when Abraham physically and visually sees the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Now we have David situated in the eastern gate of the Millennial Temple. He has a role that is is secondary to Christ, but nevertheless a very important role. He's given a a position uh, almost as a a consort of some kind, as as some kind of uh, accompaniment to what the Lord is doing. He's making offerings and all the rest of it. But he's also witnessing the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Because David was promised that a son of his would sit upon his throne forever. And now I hear the Lord privileges him to sit there in that eastern gate and to look out and to know that sitting in the holiest of all, sitting on the throne room is his own lineage. The son of David ruling and reigning forever just as the Lord promised. So he has this role as a civic leader and Jesus rules over him as Lord of all. But for the moment, Israel is without a prince. Neither David nor indeed any son of David, the Lord Jesus, is anywhere to be seen physically now In the capital of Jerusalem. So she has no king. She has no prince. Look at Hosea chapter 3 and verse 4. Notice what else she is. She's without a sacrifice. She's without a sacrifice. Chapter 3 and verse 4 of uh, Hosea's prophecy. What's going on here? What is it with? Overheads in our church. Screen freeze. Okay, forget it. (laughs) Oh dear, technology. Apostle Paul never had these problems. Anyway, uh, you know, she's without a sacrifice. That's the third thing. And, uh, you know, in that respect, in 70 AD, the Roman commander Titus comes. You know the story. He attacks the city of Jerusalem. He besieges it. It falls. His soldiers uh, set the uh, the temple on fire uh, against his commandment, uh, and the and and all the precious metals begin to melt. They burn down into the crevices and the rocks that are upholding the temple and uh, that are forming the temple. And Titus, when he discovers what they've done, is incensed because he wanted to take the gold and the silver with him. He wanted to claim it as the spoils of war, and he's so angry that he forces his soldiers to to literally dig down into the crevices of the rocks and to pull out the silver and gold that is melted so as to bring it back with them to Rome. And in the course of that, of course they demolish the temple. And just like Jesus said in his prophecy, not one stone would be left standing. So that's what happens. Now from that moment on there is no more sacrifice in the temple in Israel because there's no more temple uh, in Israel. And to this day, that 37 acre site that forms the temple mount sits essentially empty and desolate. There's only two buildings on it really and that is the dome of the rock and the Mosque. And other than that, there's no other buildings on that great big site. If you've been there, you know what I mean. It's just a big blank plateau. And it sits there empty, uh, waiting for that day whenever Israel might begin to re sacrifice uh, unto the Lord. So there's no legitimate sacrifices that can take place at this point in that area but before or during the tribulation period and we know this from the writings of uh, of the Gospels we know it from the writings of Paul we know it from the writings of John that there's going to be a temple re-erected in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount uh, before or during the tribulation period and at that temple there will be a resumption of the sacrifices now not only will she be without a temple she'll be without an image look again in verse uh, 4 For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king and without a prince and without a sacrifice and without an image. Now what does that mean without an image? Well quite literally that Hebrew word means without pillars. And one of the outstanding characteristics of the temple of old was that it had two great bronze pillars that met you as you approached the holy place. So there were two pillars that went up either side of the entrance at the top of the steps. These two great pillars were there emphasizing the majesty of the place and the presence of the Lord. And in other words, there will be no temple. Not only will there be no sacrifice, there will be no temple. And so it remains until the end of time. As I say, look in Revelation chapter 11. Revelation chapter 11. No temple Temple is destroyed in 70 AD. There's no temple there now. There never has been a temple there since the Roman army left the scene. But you come to Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 11, you're in the midway point of the tribulation period. And it says in verse 1, And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood saying, And notice what he says and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. So there has to be a temple in place for that happen to happen. Then in chapter 3 and verse 4 of Hosea, she's punished and disciplined by having no ephod. Now what's an ephod? It says the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod. An ephod was part of the high priest's garments. It was like an apron worn by the high priest. So now there's no priestly caste, if you like. There's no king. There's no prince. Uh, there's no sacrifice. There's no, uh, there's no temple. There's no pillars. Uh, you know, there's no ephod. There's no high priestly garments. There's no high priestly ministry. All of this is done away with until the Lord Jesus comes. And when he comes, he combines the two offices of priest and king into one office. And he rules, not only as king of kings and lord of lords, but he rules as the great high priest of Israel. And then finally, she's without a teraphim. Or teraphim. I've got my thing working again. Very temperamental. Must be a woman. Uh, anyway. Uh, You hold the door open and I'll keep running, okay? Um, So anyway, (laughs) you ladies love it. You love it when I say that stuff. But anyway, (laughs) um, so without teraphim, okay, what's teraphim? Teraphim are household gods that are made in the images of men. And uh, you say, well, well, how does this fit in? You know, no king, no prince, no sacrifice, no enemies, no ephod, all of that's legitimate part and parcel of Israelite history and culture and religion. But what about teraphim? Teraphim are not part of their culture. Teraphim was something they were supposed to avoid. But that's the whole point. God is going to cure them of idolatry. Uh, there's going to come a point when there will be no inkling of idolatry in them whatsoever. You see, remember, their religion was a hybrid religion, Part Judaism, part paganism. And whilst the other features of this passage are all legitimate parts of Judaism, the teraphim was not. But once the land would be cured, there would no longer be any teraphim in the land forever. And of course, uh, from the time that the Israelites have returned after the Babylonian captivity, they have largely eschewed idolatry. They certainly, The Jewish people certainly don't have household gods. If you want to see household gods, you don't have to go to Jerusalem to see them. You can go into just about any Roman Catholic home, and you can see uh, statues to Padre Pio and Francis of Assisi and Mary and Jesus and others. Well, that's like teraphim. That's the same thing. It's idols made in the images of men. And you certainly won't find that in a Jewish home today. They're without that now, and they will be without it forever when the Lord Jesus comes again. So the withdrawal of all these blessings and the removal from the land was the price that they would pay for their idolatry. Let's go back to Hosea chapter 13 and verse 1. Hosea chapter 13 and verse 1. When Ephraim spake trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. When he reverenced the Lord, he was exalted. Righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. So that we read, but when he offended in Baal, he died. But now they sin more and more, and have made them molten images of their silver and idols, according to their own understanding. All of it the work of the craftsmen. They say of them, let the men that sacrifice kiss the calves. So they're making these idols, and they're saying, let the people worship these. Therefore they shall be as the morning cloud, and as the early dew that passeth away... As the chaff that is driven with the whirlwind out of the floor. Remember, they've sown to the wind, they'll reap the whirlwind. They're going to be swept out of the land. As the smoke out of the chimney. So God is saying, I'm going to punish you. Look at verse 6. According to their pasture, so were they filled. They were filled, and their heart was exalted. Therefore have they forgotten me. Therefore I will be unto them as a lion. As a leopard by the way will I observe them. I will meet them as a bear that is bereaved of her whelps. There's no bear that is more dangerous than a bear with cubs. And will rend the call of their heart. And there will I devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. O Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. But in me is thine help. What a beautiful line. Verse Uh, Verse 11, I gave the king in mine anger, and I took him away in my wrath. There be without a king. Verse 13, the sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon thee. And of course, uh, that is the constant analogy of the tribulation period in the New Testament. The sorrows of a travailing woman shall come upon thee. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long in the place of the breaking forth of children, verse fifteen, though he be fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come, the wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness, and the spring shall become dry, sown do the wind reap a whirlwind, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall spoil the treasure of all pleasant vessels. Samaria shall become desolate, for she hath rebelled against her God. they shall fall by the sword, their infants shall be dashed in pieces. And their women with child shall be ripped up. So, Israel was going to reap what she had sown. She was destined for the judgment of God and a certain judgment at that. And yet, as we read in verse 9, her condition is not entirely hopeless because the Lord says, In me is thine help. Which brings us to our last thought in this book. We see how Israel was disciplined. No king, no prince, no sacrifice, no temple, and so on. Now we see how she is to be delivered. Look in chapter 13 and verse 4. Yet I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. You know, you should underline that verse in your Bible. It's a great verse to show a Jehovah's Witness. I'll tell you why. Because he doesn't believe that Jesus is God. And so you say to him, well, you know, is, is Jesus the savior? And he will say, yes, Jesus is the savior. And so you ask him, well, are there two saviors? And you say, no, there's only one savior. And then you read him this verse: "There shall be no god but me, but there is no savior, for there is no savior beside me." Jehovah is the savior. Jehovah and Jesus are the same in essence. So he's in trouble on that verse. He's going to struggle with that verse. But anyway, I, I kind of. Uh, I'm going down a rabbit trail there. Let me bring you back. Verse 10. I will be their king, whereas any other that may save thee in all thy cities and thy judges of whom thou says, give me a king and princes. Um, uh, further on down in uh, verse, chapter 14 and verse 4. I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely, for mine anger is turned away from him. I will be as the Jew unto Israel. He shall grow as the lily and cast forth his roots as Lebanon. His branches shall spread and his beauty shall be as the olive tree and his smell as Lebanon. They that dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall revive as the corn and grow as the vine. The scent thereof shall be as the wine of Lebanon." Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? Remember, she's without teraphim. What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard him and observed him. I am like a green fir tree. From me is thy fruit found. Who is wise and he shall understand these things? Asked Hosea. Prudent and he shall know them. For the ways of the Lord are right and the just shall walk in them. But the transgressors shall fall therein. So here's a series of promises By which God states his blessings will still fall upon Israel once they've repented. And being restored to fellowship. And notice notice back there in verses 4 and 5. The three I wills. I will heal. I will love them. I will be as the Jew unto Israel. Notice it's I will. This is something yet future. God is looking down the timeline of prophecy. He says there's a day coming. When I'm going to restore them. I will heal their backsliding. I'm going to cure their idolatry. I'm going to restore them. I will love them freely. I will be as the Jew Onto Israel, now, in no time in all of Israelite history have the conditions described in verse, in chapter fourteen ever been uh, true of, of that nation it 's never been attained israel 's history from this point on is one largely of desolation and occupation you know as soon as the Assyrians come into the land and the Babylonians come into the land then they're followed after one empire after another until you come to the time of the Romans and of course the Romans are occupying the land by the time the Lord Jesus comes along And then after that, what happens? Well, the Jews are dispersed throughout the Roman Empire. The Hadrian who built Hadrian's wall comes along. He refuses them entry into Jerusalem. He refuses them the opportunity to sacrifice. He sends them out through the empire and they are spread throughout all of the world. That's one of the reasons why today you'll find Jewish people in just about every nation under the sun. And so even though in 1948 then Israel is restored as a nation, they're back on the map, they're again a a, a force in this world. Uh, Still with all, they're hardly viewed within the world family as described here, as having a beauty and a smell as Lebanon, you know, like the cedar tree of Lebanon. They're not seen as a blessing in the world. The nation of Israel presently is seen as a pariah nation. They're viewed with disdain and condemnation by the world. In fact, the United Nations has condemned Israel more times than any other other nation on earth. Get this, in the month of December, in one day, there were five UN resolutions that were laid to the charge of Israel. In one day, in that month, there were 15 anti Israeli resolutions made by the United Nations. Now the rest of the world together only had 13 such resolutions of condemnation. Israel gets 15 and all the rest of the countries get 13. So what the United Nations is saying to us that in terms of the, of the checklist of really bad nations, Israel is at the bottom. They think that Israel is doing worse than North Korea, doing worse than China, doing worse than Russia, doing worse than Iran or Syria or Hezbollah in Lebanon or Hamas in the Palestinian territory. You see, here's the deal. As far as they're concerned, Israel is the terrorist state on earth. But of course, you and I know that's not true. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East. It's the only country in the Middle East where there is freedom to all citizens, irrespective of their religious viewpoints or backgrounds. And so the world... Hates Israel. But all of that will change when the Lord Jesus returns. And Israel will be a blessing to the nations. His branches shall be spread. And his beauty shall be as the olive tree. And his smell as Lebanon. So Hosea then as we close. Is a book that brings both a message of judgment. Parallel alongside a word of hope. Although the prophet writes with a broken heart, his own broken heart, detailing the sins of the nation of Israel, he anticipates a brighter and better day under the rule and reign of Christ. Israel's unfaithfulness could never undo God's faithfulness. And I love that. I love that my salvation rests not upon my faithfulness, but upon his faithfulness. You see, he's never going to let us down. He's never going to renege on his promises. And despite their rebellion, God will not abandon his chosen people according to the flesh forever and will one day restore them. Now that same faithfulness undergirds our salvation also. Our hope tonight is not in our own merit, is not in our own effort, is not in our personal goodness, is not in anything that we commend ourselves with but in the one constant of God's love, of his grace, of his mercy, and his commitment to keep his promises to us in Christ, no matter what. And we'll close our book there. And Lord willing, next week, we'll begin the book of Joel. So if you would, please read the book of Joel. It's only three chapters. If you read the book of Joel, in fact, you could read it several times between now and next week, and you'll be flying when we look at that book. All right? All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer.